Hey everyone, we finally have podcast subscriptions. Get exclusive subscribers-only podcasts with interviews, our personal opinions on current events, and coming soon, early access to our public releases for only $6.99 a month. Subscribe on Anchor right now. I'm Scott Dworkin, and you're listening to The Dworkin Report. My special guest today is Karen Howe. She's a journalist with the MIT Technology Review, whose groundbreaking work looking into Facebook just got validated in a massive way this week. Howe is a senior artificial intelligence editor for the Review and holds a mechanical engineering degree from MIT, which she took to outlets like Mother Jones and Quartz, where she honed her craft as a data journalist before earning her current senior role and recently becoming a night science journalism fellow. And to decipher what Facebook is doing with our data, it would be difficult without Karen Howe's well-sourced and explained account because you really need an advanced engineering degree to understand what the world's largest social media messaging company is doing. Her groundbreaking reporting spans from the murky world of Facebook's reliance on artificial intelligence to create programs that make autonomous decisions about what people see and human networks that convert disinformation for hire into cold hard cash. If there's one thing that stunned me the most about this interview, it's that BuzzFeed caught and exposed the Eastern European troll farms who polluted the 2016 election with pro-Trump disinformation. Yet Karen reports that not only did Facebook allow people in those same countries to influence Americans with inauthentic content, but they allowed them to get paid for it. And you won't believe who cut the checks. Please take a listen to this fascinating interview. I'm here with award-winning journalist and engineer, Karen Howe, who serves as the senior editor at MIT Technology Review, reporting on artificial intelligence. Hey, Karen, how are you today? Thanks for joining us. Good. How are you, Scott? I'm doing well. And it's hard to ask that question, you know, with the pandemic and everything going on right now, but like, it's definitely better than it was a year ago or two years ago in my definitely. perspective, um, you know, with the vaccine and everything out now. Yeah. Last month, you had reported that troll farms reached 140 million Americans on Facebook a little over a year before the 2020 election. Can you maybe explain to folks who were being targeted and how you think this impacted the election and also maybe how you unearthed this story? The way that I came about this story was I had been working on another story about Facebook. Um, it was an investigation into the responsible AI team, which is becoming increasingly relevant this week with uh, Francis Haugen's testimony. But um, at the time after I published that story, um, you know, whenever you write about a topic, people who are interested in that topic or know about that topic will start messaging you. And so I started getting messages from former Facebook employees who um, were just they they were just talking about how much my article resonated with them. And as I started talking with them, there were uh, there was one employee in particular who, right before he left Facebook, he had downloaded some of the more salient documents, internal research that he had seen um, posted at the company, um, sort of similar to the way that Francis Haugen started doing that. But um, Francis Haugen was a lot more strategic and and um, was doing it very systematically. He was kind of just whatever he happened to come across, he would just download and store. Um, and there was this one report in particular that he hadn't seen anyone write about yet. 
Um, and it was w- what you just talked about, this this report into troll farm activity um, in October 2019. And he just gave me the entire document. Um, and as I started reading the report, I was like, this is insane. <laughs> like, it's basically written by this data scientist at Facebook, um, not related to the actual person that gave me the document. But the data scientist spent two and a half years at Facebook, essentially trying to study how bad actors like troll farms will exploit the algorithm and the platform's design to reach a, an, an enormous audiences without necessarily even understanding the culture of the audiences they target or even understanding the language that of the audiences they're targeting. Um, and so for the report, he'd specifically focused on troll farms that are based in Kosovo and Macedonia. The report talks about the reason why um, he focused on that was because in the 2016 election, those were known bad actors. So if they're continuing to successfully use the platform in the same ways that they did during the 2016 election, then it should be concerning because it's already been three years since then. And we're upcoming to another extremely important and pivotal election. And what he found was that there were around 15,000 Facebook pages with a majority U.S. audience that were being run out of Kosovo and Macedonia. Um, And those pages had reached 140 million U.S. users monthly, 360 million global users weekly. And what's even more crazy is it talks about how 70% of the users that it reached had had actually not followed a single page um, in this these troll farm pages, and so it was explicitly Facebook's platform design and Facebook's algorithm that was actively pushing them this content into their newsfeed, and that's how it had obtained such a huge reach, almost fifty percent of Americans. Wow. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. So just in case anybody listening doesn't know, um, what is a troll farm? So this is this is a complicated question, actually. And I've been speaking with a lot of experts about this recently because the language around troll farms has continued to evolve or the understanding around troll farms has continued to evolve. This report was written in 2019 when troll farm was still a very common term that specifically referred to these groups of people imagine like an organization where they would coordinate um shit posting on the internet essentially um for for either financial purposes or political purposes so either they're coordinating um posting on the internet just viral content to get a lot of clicks which they can then monetize through ads or um they specifically have some kind of political motive motive where they're trying to change public opinion or change the outcomes of an election um and this is this is um what the russia troll farms what they were doing during the 2016 elections they were specifically politically motivated and trying to sway um public opinion in the US um but there the term has sort of evolved since then and now a lot of people talk about this as um 
the term disinformation for hire. And it's sort of a similar concept. You have an organized group of people that um, can be mobilized um, to post this kind of content in a coordinated way, and they can literally be hired by politicians around the world um, to to drum up um, a lot of noise around a given topic. It's like an online mafia or online militia or something. I, I, it, like, it seems just crazy that you know this, this stuff can happen. Is there a lot of money invested in troll farms or do they make a lot of money off of it? Um, do they pay money to Facebook to be on there and, and expand their reach and whatnot? They are paid a lot of money. Um, and it's not them paying Facebook, it's Facebook paying them. So this is like one of the more startling things in this report is that um, the way that these troll farms made money um, for in 2019, at least, was by creating these domains um, that that posted tons of clickbait content, and then creating Facebook pages where they would share out those those um, articles from their domain, and then they would monetize both the domain with Google Ads. And they would monetize the Facebook page with Facebook's instant articles program, uh, which where Facebook will insert ads into the content um, in, into an article if the domain is enrolled in instant articles. And so these these farms were earning tons of money from both Google and Facebook, like they were getting checks literally sent to them um, for the number of ads that they were running on the site. Um, and there was a screenshot after I posted, published this article in particular, um, there was a screenshot that um, this civil rights researcher in Myanmar um, tweeted of an invoice from Facebook to um, a massive, or sorry, from Facebook to a Myanmar troll farm. And I'm, let me actually pull it up because the, the number on there for how much they earned in that invoice was just like really crazy to me. It was like 4,000 USD or something like that. Um, and I imagine that that's like a monthly payment. So if you imagine like these, these markets where, um, in Myanmar or Macedonia, Kosovo, like $4,000 goes a really long way. So this is like a very, a very lucrative business to be in. And a lot of people actually do it as their full-time job because it's more stable work and more high paying work than anything else that um, is offered to them. I'm right. And they can probably this. be paid from anywhere around the world by anybody. Uh, but, but specifically paid by Facebook. Yeah. It's crazy. I mean, this was back in 2019. The report said that at, there at some point, they couldn't, the data scientists didn't quantify how many troll farms were part of the instant articles program, but it did say that troll farms in particular have certain patterns of behavior, like they will post plagiarized content, like they don't actually create their own original content. Mm -hmm. um, and at one point, the instant articles program, 60% of the publishers enrolled in the instant articles program were posting plagiarized content. Um, so we don't know if all of the plagiarized publish publishers were troll farms necessarily, but it kind of gives you a sense of scale for like how many um, how many troll farms might have actually been in that program. And uh, I just found this screenshot. It's four thousand six hundred seventy seven USD, and this payment was made in January twenty twenty. So it was 
already a few months after the October 2019 report. Jeez. And so the, those people who are the troll farms that plagiarize stuff, when you say that, are they just copying and pasting text from other people and uh, presenting it as their own? Or are they taking other people's posts and then presenting it as if it's their own? Or is it just a mix of match of, you know, whatever works at that time? Yeah, it's it's basically whatever works. I mean, there's there's two, like, as I've been digging into this more, I've seen two common things. One is the actual articles uh, that they're posting. Like, let's say their domain is, I don't know, clickbait.com. <laughs> the articles on that domain are plagiarized themselves. So they'll, they'll be copy and pasting legitimate articles written by other news organizations and then just republishing it as an their own article on clickbait.com. And then they will post it on their Facebook page. That's like one method of plagiarization. Uh, the other method is they will see content that has already gone viral on Facebook, on Twitter, on Reddit, any of the social media platforms. It's a very, very strong indicator that it would go viral again. So they just take the exact image or the exact link, the exact copy that's like written about the image or link, and then they'll repost that um, in the hopes that it will go viral and drive more audience to their page. That's interesting. What is applied machine learning? <laughs> um, so machine learning is a specific type of artificial intelligence where um, you can take a lot of data and um, if you perform quote unquote machine learning, it's essentially like statistics. If you perform some kind of fancy statistics, you can then get certain patterns in the data, like certain, like what, what data points correlate with what other data points or, um, things like that, and then use those patterns to automate decisions in the future. Um, so this is like how Facebook's ad targeting system is built. Like it, there's, there are all these machine learning algorithms running in the background where when you click on an ad, uh, let's say it's like yoga pants or whatever, and you keep clicking on ads that are related to yoga pants, these machine learning algorithms will take all of the data of the ad clicks and start to discover that you really like yoga pants and start serving you more yoga pants. Um, but like at scale, what they can also do is, oh, Karen is um, like in her late 20s and she likes yoga pants. And we've noticed that many other women in their late 20s like yoga pants. So let's send all women in their late 20s yoga pants ads. Um, or like it could get even more nuanced than that. Like, oh, she, Karen is also Chinese American and in her late twenties and she specifically likes eating dim sum or something. So let's send all women in that age range of that ethnicity dim sum ads. It, it, it can get like really, really detailed. Um, and so that is like the sort of like the, the essence of how Facebook personalizes all user news feeds and all of their ad targeting is through this, this machine learning mechanism. Yeah. I was just, I was curious because you answered the question that I was going to follow up with that. Um, what are your thoughts about whistleblower Francis Haugen? You, you had mentioned her, her testimony to Congress this week after a bombshell 60 minutes interview. Did anything surprise you or, or stick out to you that, you know, people should know about specifically? I don't think anything surprised me. I, I, um, many of the things that she talked about in her testimony were things that I wrote about, um, in February of this year. And it was nice to just be validated because when I published my investigation, Facebook, uh, said a lot of the same talking points that they're saying now, trying to discredit me and trying to discredit my work. 
Um, and so it's great that now there's this whistleblower who has extensive um, understanding of what's happening within Facebook internally and has released all these documents and is saying exactly the same thing that I was saying. Right. Um, yeah. So that's, I mean, it's, and it's, I think what stands out about what she's trying to do is right now in Congress and among policymakers, there's been a, a really big focus on how to regulate content on Facebook or or any of the social media networks, like what does and doesn't belong on the platform. And when I was writing my investigation, so many people had told me like, this is fundamentally the wrong strategy, because when you're only ever talking about what belongs or what doesn't belong, it doesn't actually get at the root of the problem because you're constantly going to, there's constantly going to be new forms of bad content that you have to update your content policy to address. But during the time that it takes for you to do that, it's already gone viral on the platform because of the way that Facebook's algorithms incentivize virality on the platform. Um, And so Frances Haugen has been like really drilling that home and being like, we need to actually look at the algorithms and the algorithmic amplification that happens on Facebook. And that is how we address this problem, not just for certain forms of bad content, but for all forms of bad content. Um, And it's, it's, it's really nice to just like see that finally landing um, because there have been many other people who've talked about it before, but I think something about her expertise and um, like her compelling the testimony has, I think really caught um, policymakers notice and and made them start thinking more deeply about that. Exactly. Uh, it, it's weird how the, you have the social network and you're providing, I guess that, you're providing the database to them or like as you enter more content or as you enter more information about yourself, you're giving them more content for them to, to be able to then provide ads or, or sustain themselves. So we're actually feeding the beast with more information. Um, I, yeah. I try, that's interesting. Um, there's a huge, uh, I, I love this report that you had in, in May of 2020, you wrote a report on, uh, uh, how nearly half of Twitter accounts pushing to reopen America may be bots. How effective in moving public opinion are these bots? What are bots? And uh, with a spread false of support and disinformation, who do you think is behind running these bots or bot networks? Yeah, well, we have really no idea with with the Twitter bot networks. I think that research was based on a Carnegie Mellon study, and they were sort of still in the process of investigating where they'd actually originated from. Mm -hmm. Um, But Twitter suffer sort of similar um, things as Facebook does. Like Facebook has these like coordinated pages that will produce all of this content to try and add a lot of noise to a particular topic. Um, And Twitter, it's bots. So it's just automated um, accounts. Um, Sometimes they're automated because, you know, someone like coded something up and they're just like posting certain content um, whenever there are certain triggers for keywords or, or things like that. And it'll just automatically reply to other people or post at, at a certain frequency. And sometimes the bots means that there are actually people hired um, in these kinds of troll farm setups where they're all just posting the same thing at the same time um, across like the same, same communities or Twitter spheres. Um, and it's, it's very difficult to quantify like how much, this does sway public opinion because ultimately you would have to survey, you know, the American public to figure out like how much 
do people believe like a certain thing after they've seen all of these Twitter bots posting about that particular thing. Um, but it certainly does like really disrupt the online discourse because some of these techniques for um, automating this, this like posting of content, they can just create hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of bots to overwhelm um, the online discourse on a specific topic that they care about. So it's that's why it's kind of shocking that report. It said there were like close to 50 percent or around 50 percent of the people, the accounts that were posting those things were actually part of this coordinated effort. Um, if you'd removed all of those, then like the volume of, you know, re- I think it was they were posting about like reopening America, um, if I remember correctly. So if you if you took out 50 percent or all of the automated accounts away, then like there would be 50% less volume on Twitter talking about reopening America during a time when we didn't have vaccines yet. So, um, yeah, so it's hard to, it's hard to quantify, but, but you can sort of extrapolate from those numbers, how it does change discourse. Hey everyone. We finally have podcast subscriptions. Get exclusive subscribers-only podcasts with interviews, our personal opinions on current events, and coming soon, early access to our public releases for only $6.99 a month. Subscribe on Anchor right now. Seems like it could be a really good weapon if you wanted Americans to hurt themselves in some some way. I mean, it's just, I've I've seen them do this. Obviously, there were Facebook events back in uh, 2016 and then afterwards where they would uh, advertise or, or pay money to have Black Lives Matter and then like Proud Boys meet up at the same location, the same time, same day, yeah. that kind of stuff. And and it was just, you know, that's, that's pretty intense. I've also seen people who think that they have all this support. And then in reality, it doesn't seem like that uh, there's that many people. Whose responsibility is it? And, and maybe I don't even include this in the question. Maybe the responsibility is the user but whose responsibility is it? Uh, is it the social networking company, the government, to monitor attempts to influence thoughts on major issues like COVID, elections, and more? Like whose responsibility is it to protect the user, or is it only on the user to protect themselves from this? I mean, I think everyone has a responsibility, but I do think that the tech companies, in particular, have a huge responsibility because they're the ones that actually have visibility into this stuff. Like, there's there's only so much research that external researchers can do to figure out whether or not a Twitter account is a bot or a Facebook page is uh, part of a troll farm run by a troll farm. Um, but like there's infinitely more visibility within the tech companies by the employees themselves because they have access to a much deeper look at the data um, behind each of these like pages and accounts. So from that perspective, purely like they are the ones that need to be on top of this. Either they need to be more transparent and get more people involved in um, trying to tackle these issues, or they have to take it on themselves. And as we've seen with Facebook lately, they used to be much more open about sharing data. And it turns out that they've actually been obfuscating some of the data that they're sharing to academics for research purposes. And they're also shutting down a lot of the tools that academics previously used to try and understand these things. Um, But I do think that the government also needs to step in to actually regulate these companies because if there if there are no consequences for letting this activity continue to persist on the platform then these companies don't actually have an incentive to do anything because 
ultimately, in some cases, it's more profitable to keep these accounts and these pages running on the platforms because they're extremely viral, they're extremely engaging, and it gets users coming back to continue reading stuff on Facebook and Twitter. So I think those, yeah, that they both of them share some responsibility. And then, I mean, for users, I don't know that. I think responsibility is a weird word to frame what role the user has, but I do think every user can just um, strengthen their own critical reading skills and and just be skeptical every time you read content or see an account and um, and educate yourself on like some easy investigative techniques for figuring out whether or not a source of news or um or a page or whatever it is is actually accurate um and if you start having suspicions because the content is particularly clickbaity or it's it's not very well written or um you know a whole host of other um tip-offs then you can kind of dig into it more yourself before you decide whether or not to believe it or share it any thoughts on what might be next for misinformation, disinformation? Is it going to be deep fake video? Like what is going to be the next level that the, the, you see right now? Yeah. I mean, deep fakes are a huge, I think they're, they're, they're very much looming on the horizon. Um, this is, I cover them a lot because of my, my beat um, in artificial intelligence and um the technology for creating deepfake videos and deepfake audio is just getting better every day. Um, and I just wrote a piece a couple weeks ago about this new app where with one click, you could face swap a woman into a porn video, um, into a deepfake porn video. And so I think that is absolutely something that we're going to start seeing more in the future. Um, I mean, we're already starting to see cheap fakes and cheap, cheap fakes is the term for like real videos that are then recontextualized in misleading ways. So like a video of a protest happening in India that that's then posted in Pakistan or whatever to say like, oh, there's a riot happening in Pakistan, things like that, that are, that already happens constantly. So if you could imagine in the future, um, people not just being able to post repost old videos, but to make new videos for the context that they want, then, you know, that's going to be a huge crisis that we need to deal with. Reminds me of Ted Cruz and Don Jr. who posted that video of the guy hanging from the uh, helicopter because he was trying to fix a flag, but they acted like he was being hung from the helicopter by the Taliban in Afghanistan and it was a complete disinformation. Like, and they have like images that brought out of it, and, and people aren't yeah. really calling them out of it because it's like, well, I don't want to give that attention to it. So it's like a weird balance that we have. There's like a responsibility to call it out, but then not. Uh, uh, Karen Howe, yeah. I, I appreciate your journalism. Everything you do is phenomenal, and I don't say that word with journalists or most people in general. I'm so <laughs> impressed by your work. Please, everyone, follow her, underscore Karen Howe, that's H-A-O, on Twitter, underscore Karen Howe. Thank you so much for taking the time with me. I look forward to having you back sometime in the near future. And, uh, again, keep up the great work. You're really doing a lot to, to make a big difference in uh, not just the country but also across the world. So thank you for that. Thank you so much, Scott. Make sure to subscribe for our podcast at anchor.fm slash to work and report slash subscribe. 
Thanks again to Karen Howe for joining us today. Thanks to the best producer in the universe, Mr. Grant Stern. You can follow him at Grant Stern on Twitter. You can visit our website at dworkinreport.com. Thanks again for listening. Onward!